You're listening to All The Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. The other day I came across a great new word, Sprachgefühl. Sprachgefühl is a German word that describes the intuitive feeling of a language, Sprache being language and Gefühl being feeling. The idea is that every language has its own character, its own personality that influences the speaker, informing their ways of thinking, their behaviours and their understanding of the world around them. I was chatting to my housemate about this and she was telling me that her identity and sense of self is largely informed by the language in which she communicates. She's originally from Spain and describes herself as having a different sense of humour when speaking in Spanish, a different way of communicating and expressing herself. I used to speak Italian, but much to my nonna's disappointment, I have long since forgotten it. And looking back over past messages, I realised I can't even understand my own words. After chatting to my housemate about Sprachgefühl, I wonder what part of my personality I may have lost by forgetting Italian. Today's stories explore how language contributes to our understanding of identity. In our first story, Ying explores how her mother tongue, Renchu dialect, connects her to her family and sense of self. Mandarin is the universally used language in China when you think about China as a whole. But if you zoom into different regions, you will hear people speak much different language, sound quite different from Mandarin. That's Chinese dialects. People divide dialects into several categories. What most people agree with is, users of different dialects sometimes cannot understand each other. You can hear them in drama. And music. And even on trains. With the development of urbanization and modern education, People use Mandarin in more occasions, but only use dialects within families. Many marginal dialects not only exist in few people's life and face an endangered situation. My hometown dialect is a small branch under Ming dialect. It is called Renshou dialect, simply just because my hometown is Renshou, a small town in southeast of China. Back in Sydney last year, I had video calls with grandma every week or fortnight. She doesn't use smartphone, so I just called my elder sister because she visits our grandparents every weekend. 
Having conversations with family is always a good way for me to hear my nostalgia. My hometown dialect once was the most familiar language to me, but now I feel like I'm losing it. Jing is one of my best friends. We grew up together. Now she has lived in Fuzhou, the capital city of Fujian Province, for seven years. Do you feel your hometown dialect is not as good as before? Yes, sometimes I can't remember some words, such as like animals' name, such as dragonfly, butterfly. Do you remember? <laughs> no, I say. Back in 1970s, many rural young laborers leave their hometowns and seek good jobs in cities. Their children are left behind in rural area, raised by grandparents or other family members. After working hard for years, they earn enough money to support their kids' education and daily expenses. Then they take their children back to cities. I was one of the leftover children. I raised by my grandparents until I was ten years old. My parents worked in a city nearby, but they were too busy to visit me several times in a year. The first language I learned is Renshou dialect, and the first word I learned is "ama," which means grandma. Ama, my grandma lives in a traditional southern villa with three floors and a courtyard. Six people live in this house, including my aunts and uncles. Today, my grandma has some friends at home. I put on a caller mic on grandma's clothes to record her voice, and she is very curious about it. She doesn't know what it is, but finds it funny. Grandma has two cats. One has just given birth to a kitten recently. Now the mother cat is taking her kitten to the nest to nurse. Grandma is talking about funny things of having cats with her friend. What do you say? You're not just saying that you're going to be a kid. 
我們的人生是很快的<笑> 我们就和阿婆爸爸到阿婆阿妈就做起来 I say tomorrow I will leave and go to Fuzhou for interview training she wants to give me some money for my trip, and I say no. I say I will give her red pocket on the next New Year's Eve. Granddad is coming. He's not in good condition this month. He asks me how many bottles of medicine I gave her last time. I said just one. Did you take it every day? He says, yeah, I do what you told me. Do you feel better with your leg now? <laughs> he says not so good recently. My grandma says he's like a poor and ill kid. Sibinjing, a slang I never heard before. I heard grandma said many old sayings and slangs since I was a kid, but now I don't quite understand some of them anymore. It is true that my hometown dialect is not as good as before, and my accent has changed a lot. But I'm doing much better than my younger sister. She is also a left-behind child. She was raised by grandparents for five years, and returned to our parents before she could learn a duct well. She almost had thrown it away. She can only speak some simple words like 
yes, no, eat, or I don't eat. Now every time she talks to our grandparents, someone has to play the role of translator. You don't eat meat. Who doesn't eat? She asks. We say cats. What cat don't eat? Grandma says, What is Well, it's hard to explain. Just something black. She asks what we are talking about. <laughs> and I made a mistake. I translate killing fish as shark because they have the same pronunciation in Mandarin. Walking on the streets in my hometown, compared to 20 years ago, things doesn't change a lot. The bubble shop is still there, and the private clinic. Their ages are even older than me. People are still busy with shopping on market day every five days. The path to grandparents' house is still narrow and long. But I hear more people speaking Mandarin than before. And I see many children who can't speak in hometown dialect. That story was produced by Xuying Miao. Zoe Ferguson was the supervising producer. You're listening to All the Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. At All the Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays, and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. In our next story, Leanne explores how the words she uses to talk about herself shape her experience and identity as a disabled woman. Before I met Leanne, I did the typical thing. I scrolled through her Instagram account to try to find out more about her. And this one post really popped out to me. It's a beautiful photo. She's standing in a doorway and leaning on a cane, wearing this teal leopard print skirt, which she's holding slightly lifted on one side, revealing a uniquely scarred leg. And the post is announcing that she's signed up to a modeling agency. Would you do me a favor and just read out that Instagram post that you did? Yeah. Let me have a look. Got it. So I wrote, I don't usually see people in the media like me. Big, funky, chunky scars, uneven posture, a hearing aid user, a walking aid user, 
bad bones, full of metal, a living medical group project. It can feel isolating. I want to show other people with marginalised patchwork bodies that their one-of-a-kind body is a work of art. Here's to hoping I can make my younger self proud as hell. What would your 12-year-old self think of you now? Um, so that's really hard to say. It's I'm so different from what I actually thought I was going to be doing. I didn't know where our conversation was going to take us. What emerged was this insightful reflection on her own evolution of thinking about being a disabled woman. Those are the words that she prefers to use to describe herself. For her, this journey started in grade seven. I felt a stinging in my leg and I said to my mum and dad, oh, you know, my leg's stinging so much and really... I think I was just trying to get out of school, honestly. Like, it wasn't even that bad. It worked. She got out of school to go to the doctor. A whirlwind of tests, and a few days later, they had the diagnosis. A form of bone cancer. Being an 11-year-old kid, I was, like, really bragging. You know, when kids notice that they're special for some sort of reason, they really cling on to it, and it becomes, like, an attention thing. And I was like, oh, yes, it's because I have cancer, and... You know, it was kind of like I would just say it willy-nilly, you know, to anyone who would hear. As you can probably guess, that initial fun novelty phase didn't last long. But we are going to skim right past all of the medical stuff because that's not what this story is about. It's about everything that comes after. But you do need to understand that it was a scary, traumatic time. She spent a solid year living in hospital and really the next seven yo-yoing in and out. She permanently lost her hearing as a side effect of the chemo. So she became a hearing aid user. And because of the surgery she had, she also became a wheelchair user for a few years before eventually using a walking aid. When she finally did go back to school as a wheelchair user, she could only take classes on the ground floor because there weren't any ramps or elevators. But at that time, she didn't know that was a problem. Which is just wild in today's climate. But back then, we were barely even using the internet. There's no community of disability advocates saying, we won't put up with this. So everything I was going through was like the first time, the first one, the first disabled kid. Of course, there were disability activists already, and she wasn't the first kid with a disability. But they weren't on Leanne's radar, and so for her, it felt like all of these experiences she was going through on her own. I find it traumatic for what I went through, but I think it is more traumatic to see somebody go through that knowing you can't do anything. Like, I was always so strong for my mum and dad because... They were like just going day by day, hoping their kid didn't die. Because of the weight of this, Leanne became mature way beyond her years. I was surrounded by adults who couldn't cope with what was happening to me when they were witnessing it. To be able to cope mentally, they need to be able to say, oh, but look how inspirational she is. Look how mature she is for her age. Look how positive her outlook is and as a child you pick up on those tones of voice and you validate those people's feelings 
that's no one's fault. It's not the hospital's fault. It's not my family's fault. It's not my fault. It's not the charity's fault. But the situation is that it was very me consoling other people, making them feel better. And what seemed like a natural progression of all of this, Leanne started giving public speeches. I definitely knew that I was, in quotations, an inspiration. I was happy to go and do speeches, and I was like the poster child for all cancer charities. Like, my photo was in newspapers. I would go to fundraisers. I was making these speeches saying, I'm almost glad it happened to me because it's made me who I am, all these things, you know. I thought, this is me. It's what my life is about. But as time went by, this whole role of being an inspiration, it started to sit uncomfortably with her. But she couldn't pinpoint why. I just sat with it and thought, oh, you know what? It's, whatever they're saying, it's nice anyway. You don't really question things when you're a kid. You just are going through it. You just think it's okay. Now, looking back, I know I was becoming inspiration porn. If you're connected to the disability community, you probably know that term, inspiration porn. The phrase was coined by the late Stella Young, and she gave an incredible TED Talk about it in 2014. If you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor and watch it right away. It is that good. But the gist is that inspiration porn refers to the objectification of one group of people for the benefit and inspiration of another group. So telling somebody they are an inspiration to you just because they live with disability. That is an example of inspiration porn. But going back to Leanne, at that time in life, Stella Young hadn't even given that TED Talk. So these terms were definitely not in her knowledge bank. But even without this phrase, she decided she had to forge an identity beyond being an inspiration. And so, at the age of 18, when she was asked if she wanted to give another inspirational speech, she said no. That was like a real turning point. That was the first time I had said, no, I don't want to. I need to actually separate myself from this because I need to have my own life. And really, she's at the age where everyone's reinventing themselves. You're coming out of high school, meeting new people. You have a chance to start fresh. And so Leanne replaced inspiration with humor. With her friends, and definitely every time she met someone new, she'd make a joke about her disability and being a cancer kid. It was her way of making people feel comfortable with having the conversation. So I would try and get in before that point of it being brought up awkwardly. The joke factor, that was my in for the conversation. I don't even know how to explain it, but it was just real dark humour type thing, which, you know what, I still make those jokes today. A joke is a joke. If it's funny, it's funny. If it's not, it's not. But I would go to an extreme where I would... I would be having just a regular conversation and then I would make sure I'd make the punchline and, you know, because I had cancer and everything. At that time, Leanne would have told you she was on top of it and that she had a really healthy relationship with her disability. Then an interaction with this guy she'd gone on a few dates with really rocked that view. 
I had come to the conclusion that I didn't want to pursue a relationship, I just wanted to be friends with a person. This person was like really disgruntled that I felt that way. And like I just made an offhand joke saying, you know, because I use having cancer to get attention all the time. Because they were upset with me, they replied with, yeah, you do though. I like, I literally had a pit in my stomach and I've never forgotten it. That was the first time someone had not laughed along with the joke with me. That was like a real defining moment. Like, don't get me wrong, this person is absolute trash. <laughs> but from that point on, I sort of reflected on myself and said, by making these jokes and getting people to think that I'm really not bothered by it, which is not true, it's something that's really dear to my heart, something I'm really passionate about and it's part of who I am. I've allowed someone to take control of the narrative of who I am and I stopped doing that from then on. But then I went through a stage of like separating myself completely. It's not who I am. I don't want to discuss it with anyone because they can take it away and make it whatever they want at any time. And so that went on for a few years. Again, you got to realize that up until this point, she was not connected with the disability community. Everything, she was just navigating it on her own. But then something happened. Through social media, she found her way to a bunch of empowered men and women living with disability. And now I have all these people on social media who I relate to who are so proud of their disabilities. Like, it's helped me take control of the conversation, not be scared of the awkward silences either. Like, in the past probably two years, I have been able to vocalise the way that I'm feeling call out things that have made me extremely uncomfortable for years and years because I have the vocabulary created by other disability advocates. Being able to say that's inspiration porn, refusing access to this person, saying it's too hard, that's ableism. I didn't make this stuff up. I'm not the first one, but that's the whole point of being able to push these boundaries of what is accepted by society so that we can help other people who are coming next. And remember how this story started with an Instagram post alerting the world she'd signed up with a modeling agency? Well, that's Leanne playing a part in pushing the boundaries of what's accepted by society. I don't think I'm Gigi Hadid, <laughs> but I also want there to be the option for someone to select someone like me. The concept of a model is completely constructed. We've made up a narrative and an ideology of what a model is, so why can't I be a model? I'm a size 14, <laughs> wonky, hearing aid using, scar filled woman, why is that not a model? And if I'm not seeing people like me, why don't I just do it? That story was produced by Carrie Shear. 
All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonarung lands and 8CCC on Arunda and Warramungu lands. Our editorial manager is Mel Chun. And our production manager is Danny Stewart. Emma Pham is our social media producer. Our community and events coordinator is Lydia Yosefova. And Wing Kwong is the All the Best mentee producer. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helena Bruni-Peters. Thanks for listening.